Welcome everybody to the latest edition of the Pound for Pound podcast here on the Fight Game Media Network. This is your host, the OG Rob Silver. Today we will talk about Saturday night's tremendous action in Arizona as we had a rousing heavyweight fight, a one-sided um, semifinal, and an outstanding performance by the winner in the main event. But before we talk about that, oh, also we will have another Q&A a session, and we will be talking about my eighth greatest fighter of the last 45 years, my historical overview on who I consider the greatest British fighter of all time, and that's Mr. Jamaican Ancestry, Great Britain's, Great Britain's finest, and Canadian Olympic gold medalist winner, the one, the only. Lennox Lewis. But before we get to all that, ladies and gentlemen, just a few days ago, my debut podcast on the Patreon side of the Fight Game Media podcast, and that's an additional bonus show, $5 per month, and not only do you get my part one of the life and times of Muhammad Ali, which will be a 10-part series monthly on on the Patreon portion of the Fight Game Media Network, you also get to hear in its entirety my 10 greatest upsets of all time. You will hear the owner, CEO of Fight Game Media Network, and myself review the controversial Hulu series, Mike on Mike Tyson. All four parts we review on the Patreon podcast. There's four episodes of uh Garrett and I reviewing that, and you get to hear Garrett and and our longtime friend from Ireland, Duan, do an entire historical retrospective of the Rocky series from the very first Rocky until Creed 2, as you know, Creed 3 will be coming out in the next month. So that is something well worth the $5 a month, and never mind, you have, that's the boxing context. Content, uh, the boxing content of the Patreon podcast, my Muhammad Ali series, my greatest upsets in boxing history, Garrett and I, complete rundown of the Mike Tyson Hulu series, docu-series, and now the historical retrospective of each Rocky movie that Garrett and Duan has done, you will hear that in its entirety, part one is up now and I think it's going to be a weekly series until the Creed 3 premieres. Um Duan and Garrett break it down like no other. The greatest review of anything Sylvester Stallone ever did. Now that's the boxing content on the Patreon. We also have a whole bunch of uh combat sports um, bonus content on there. Anything related to professional wrestling, whether whether it's AEW, WWE, Impact, etc. And of course, the mixed martial art giant UFC and their main competitor Bellator. Exclusive coverage of all the combat sports and especially my series on the life and times of Muhammad Ali. Part 1 is out already. 
And part two will come out in March. Part one, I give an historical overview of Ali's first round knockout of Sonny Liston from May 25th, 1965. I talk about the political climate of the country at the time, what was going on as as Ali's Nation of Islam was feuding with Malcolm X's um, Muslim organization, the assassination of Malcolm X, the uh, alleged hit that could occur on Muhammad Ali in retaliation for Malcolm X's murder. All of that was covered on that episode. I would highly recommend you guys, if you are students of boxing, students of American history, and students of Malcolm X, to go ahead and subscribe and get the, uh, for the $5 a month, and you will hear never-before analysis of the situation that was occurring in the United States and in Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali's lives early 1965. And now, on to the beginning of the program and on to the fights from Saturday night in Glendale, Arizona. The first, uh, first we will talk about the heavyweight matchup. We had we had Linear. I want to make sure I say my um, uh, my Cuban brother's name correctly. Linear Beto Beto fought Victor Foss, and it was a very entertaining fight. Faust kind of reminds me of a more disciplined Andrew Galati. He throws a lot of jabs. He fights tall. Petto reminds me of Luis Ortiz, softball fighter with great power in both hands. This was a crossroad fight. Both men up and coming, 30 years old, heavyweights at the beginning of their career, trying to get into the contendership as both men are workers to the prospects. Well, both men are very good fighters. I love Victor Falls' jab. He fights tall. And I love Petto's uh, counter-punching ability. He's got that Cuban softball style. He reminds me a lot of, of, of uh, Luis Ortiz. He reminds me so much of Ortiz. He doesn't throw a lot of punches, but when he does throw punches, they're at maximum at their maximum effort, and he's a tremendous counter-puncher. But he was losing this fight. I had... I had Foss winning five of the first seven rounds. Foss was c controlling the action with his jab. And Faust I had winning five of the first seven rounds. And Faust was winning on two of the three official scorecards going into the eighth round. I thought Petal needed a knockout, and Petal stepped it up. Midway through the round, he landed a devastating right hook to the body that looked like it broke uh, Faust either rib or two. Faust was in complete agony and he was defenseless. Pedal landed a, uh, a left hook, I mean a left cross, right hook on a defenseless Faust. Faust backed up against, buckled up against the ropes. Referee stops the fight wisely. Lenier Pedal with a great comfort behind, behind victory. I want to see Pedal fight Luis Ortiz in a battle of Cuban southpaws. You have the 75, I don't know, uh, Ortiz is in his early 40s. You, you'll have the old guard versus the new guard. I want to see that. Oh, a rematch with False. This was a very entertaining fight. False shouldn't put his head down. He got caught. He showed a lot of heart. And he lost. It happens. 
It happens. The man has skills, and he. both of these fighters are going to be a force in the heavyweight division for many, many years. Then we see Mario Barrios, after losing his last two fights to Javante uh, Davis and Keith Thurman, fought Giovanni Santiago, and this was a brutal beating. He battered Santiago from pillar to post. This was a slaughter. slaughter. Giovanni Santiago did nothing. It, it was an eight-round battering. This fight could have been stopped beginning with the fifth round. Uh, Santiago's corner did him no favors. They let that man go out there and take a hellified beating, a brutal beating. Finally, in the eighth round, the towel was thrown in. And Barrios wins. Um, a much needed win for Barrios. He's a tough fighter. Um, not in the, he gave Thurman hell. He gave Javante Davis hell. He's always competitive, and he's a good fighter. He has a nice jab. He, he throws combinations. Um, he has grown into a welterweight. He was a junior welterweight for several years. We will see what happens in the for the future because, as we know. PBC has a lot of welterweights. They could easily put him in with a Boots Ennis. And while I still think Boots beats him, he would be a good uh, test for Boots. I would love to see that Boots Ennis versus Mario Barrios. Or a rematch with Keith Thurman after Th- Thurman gets his ass handed to him by Errol Spence. We will see what the future holds for uh, Mario Barrios. And now on to the main event. Oshaki Foster versus Ray Vargas for the vacant WBC 130-pound super featherweight title, a, a title that was stripped from Shakur Stevenson when he couldn't make weight uh, last September, a fight that I attended at, at, at the Prudential Center in Newark, New Jersey, when he fought Robeson Conseco. Uh, Oshaki Foster was brilliant in this fight. Brilliant. I gave him the first four rounds. He was in and out. He was countering Vargas. Vargas was was pawing too much with the jab. He wasn't extending the jab. And when he tried and threw and throw that, that long right hand, Foster would counter beautifully. First four rounds, it was Foster. Then five and six, I had Vargas winning. And then I had Foster win round seven and eight. Uh, Vargas looked desperate, and I thought he won the ninth round. He, he, his corner got on him. But down the stretch, rounds 10, rounds 11, rounds 12, Oshaki stepped it up. I even think he hurt Vargas with a right hand in one of those rounds. Foster was out hustling, out landing, and making Vargas miss. He made Vargas miss all night long, and Foster's the much shorter fighter. Much shorter fighter, but he put on a brilliant display of counter-punching, in-and-out movement, um, combination punching. He out-hustled, out-jabbed, out-slicked, out-did everything versus Ray Vargas. Ray Vargas lost convincingly. Time for Vargas to go back to the drawing board. Does he go back down to 126 as he still has the WBC featherweight title? I don't know. He's a t- he's a tall he's he's, he's tall for the, for the weight class. So we will see if he gets a rematch against Oshaki Foster. The same thing's going to happen. Foster's a better fighter. Kudos to Foster. He had two early losses in his career. 
made him a better fighter. It just goes to show you, ladies and gentlemen, undefeated records aren't the be end and end all. You could lose. You could learn from your losses, which Foster did, and now he's a much better fighter and a tough guy for anybody from 131 to 135. Maybe he could be a potential opponent for Tank Davis. Anything's possible because I don't think you're ever going to see Tank against Devin or Shakur. But Dev, but Tank does have a lot of fighters in the PB, PBC universe that he could battle. So a uh, great win by all three fighters on Saturday night on Showtime. Lenier Pedro, Mario Barrios, and the biggest win and the fighter of the week, in my opinion, or Shaki Foster as he becomes the WBC featherweight champion, his first world title. Kudos to Foster. He fought a hell of a fight and more than deserved to win that world championship. Now, before I go on to the Q&A session, we have a very entertaining featherweight uh, alphabet soup title fight. I think it's for the WBA alphabet title um, Saturday. Um, Lee Wood defends against Mauricio Lara. This is a potential fight of the year candidate. Both men come to fight. This is going to be a war. A war because neither fighter knows how to fight any different. I see Lee Wood winning a 12-round split decision. I see a lot of blood. Maybe both fighters go down. This is going to be a hell of a fight, but I'm going to go with Wood because the fight's in his backyard, and I think that will be the deciding factor. It'll be the type of fight where a lot of people thought Lara won. Um, A lot of people think Wood won, but I think the fact that the fight's in Wood's backyard will be the deciding factor as one of the judges will lean to, maybe two of the judges will lean towards Wood because of the crowd's reaction in the whole nine. Mauricio, La- Mauricio Lara is one of the toughest fighters in the fucking world. He's a bulldog. He keeps coming, keeps coming, keeps keeps coming. Tremendous chin. This is going to be a phenomenal fight. Must see TV on that and, but you're going to hear the god-awful announcing team of Todd Gruesome, Sergio Moron, and Chris Mannix. If I was you guys, mute the fight. See, what I do when those bums are announcing, I mute the fight, put on some Sade, and watch the fight and score it on my own. So that's my prediction this week coming up. Lee Wood by 12-round split decision over Mauricio Lara. Now, some news. I'm hearing from ESPN who had announced three weeks three weeks ago, Mark Kriegel, that clown, that buffoon, that fucking idiot, told Joe Tessitore that it was all but a done deal that Usyk and Fury were going to fight, that the fight was going to be signed that week. It was all a matter of time. And what happened three weeks later? No fight. And now we're hearing that there will be no fight, according to another ESPN reporter, Mike Coppinger. Uh, this is some bullshit. All right. Why Mark Kriegel opened up his mouth and said that this fight was a done deal, that that it was oh, it was just a matter of time. It'll be a matter of days before the fight is signed. Fury versus Usyk is going the way of Crawford versus Spence. It's not happening. Another undisputed title fight that's easily made that's not going to be made. Alexander Usyk is a free agent. He will fight for anybody. Usyk fights for the highest bidder. 
He wants to fight Fury. I don't know why Fury won't fight Usyk. He's much bigger. He's just as quick. He's got more. He's uh, a bigger puncher. The fight will probably be held in England in, in Fury's favor. Come on, man. Make the fight. I'm tired of you idiots out there, you idiot boxers, the Tyson Furies, the 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 Errol Spencers, the Terrence Crawfords that don't make these fights. When the fight, when the ball's in your court, make the fight. There's a lot of money to be made, and you're making less money fighting bums. Case in point, Errol Spencer's gonna fight uh Keith Thurman. Five years ago, he knocks out Keith Thurman. Keith Thurman's a shell of a shell. Man, get this crap the fuck out of here. All right. Now on to the Q&A. Now I'm off my soapbox. Let's see what questions we have. If, if you want your questions answered on the on the podcast, go to Twitter. Hashtag Ask Rob Silver. All right. Let me go to Luigi. Luigi had a question. Let me get to his question. Let me find Luigi's question. Okay, here goes Luigi's question. Robert, my friend, non-boxing question for me for the first time. What is the greatest sporting achievement? Serena winning Wimbledon when having recovered from a life-threatening injury and being a few weeks pregnant or Tiger winning the U.S. Open on a broken leg? I give the edge to Tiger Luigi because people thought Tiger was done. And... Tiger came back, one of the greatest comebacks in sports history, period. Um, Serena had two great comebacks. She almost died once, and she won her last major. I believe she was eight weeks pregnant when she won her last major at the Australian Open several years back. Um, I give Tiger the slight edge because Serena was still in her prime when she came back from the blood clot that almost killed her and when she was eight months pregnant. Um, Tiger was written off completely, done, stick a fork in him. He came back and one of the greatest comebacks in um the history of sports, period, end of story. And uh, Tiger's never winning another major, but he went out like Serena did. Serena finally retired, but she never won another major after winning that title being pregnant. That's impressive to win your last major either being pregnant, eight weeks pregnant, or coming off a broken leg that made that Tiger was all Tiger's skill has, skills were already in massive decline, yet he came back and recovered from that broken leg and won the, won the U.S. Open in one of the great comebacks of all time. That's up there with Tyson Fury coming back from drug abuse and mental illness to become. The lineal heavyweight champion of the world, Muhammad Ali, uh, three and a half year exile from from um, boxing that was not his fault. That was the politically, and by the way, ladies and gentlemen, I will cover all of that in the Patreon um, series, the life and times of Muhammad Ali. It's right up there, uh, Luigi. So great question. I give Tiger the slight edge, and that's saying a lot because. You know, Luigi, I do not like Tiger as a person. As far as a, as an athlete, he's the greatest golfer of all time. And Serena is my favorite female athlete of all time, and I consider her the greatest af- female athlete of all time. And so for me to pick Tiger over Serena, that just goes to show you the magnitude of Tiger's comeback. 
Now, LL School K has a few questions for me. Let me get to his questions. Okay, he asked. I say you say Rob a lot. The zone is bleeding money. Please unpack what you mean for the listener. The zone has spent millions on fighters and fights. They gave Anthony Joshua a huge money deal. They gave Golden Boy a huge money deal. They gave Canelo Alvarez a huge money deal. They gave Triple G a huge money deal, and they will not release subscriber numbers. As far as who subscribe to the app to watch the boxing, they at first I believe it was nine ninety nine a month. Then, then not a year after the zone was launched, the boxing portion of of the zone was launched. Launched that they jumped it up to nineteen ninety nine, more than doubled it. So they are bleeding money. Period. End of story. Nobody is purchasing the zone. The zone is not making money. They're bleeding money, but they don't report the numbers. There's no way in the world, LL, they're making money. And this and they're paying three horrible announcers big bucks to uh fuck up their telecast. Alright. Another question by LL. Was the nineteen eighties fun to you? Yes and no. I am I was born in 1968, so I remember the 1980s completely because I was 11 when it started and I was 21 when it ended. I grew up in the South Bronx and at the height of the beginning of hip hop, the crack epidemic, AIDS exploded into the into the limelight. I had to deal with all of that. I lived in the Millbrook projects in which the projects was an open air drug market, crack market, where drug dealers sold crack with immunity. The the back then we had transit police. They didn't do shit because they were getting paid off by the drug dealers to look the other way. The drug dealers took over the, the playground. So kids younger than me. Because crack really exploded in New York City around 1984. I would have been 16 years old. And I wasn't in a, playing in the playgrounds anymore, but I'm the oldest. My sisters and my brother, who love playing handball, and they were ages uh, 10 to 13, they couldn't go in the playground because the hand, handball courts were being used to sell crack. So, but it was fun because it was the era of Michael Jackson. It was the era of MTV. It was the era of of the birth of hip hop. LL Cool J, Run DMC. So you you had it, you had both. And being in New York, there was so much to do that um, you could escape the horrors of the crack ep- ep- epidemic, in which I did, in which uh, my brethren did. Okay, another question. Uh, the follow-up, same question. Did guys from New York wear gazelle shades and tracksuits? Man, I went to graphic communication arts from 1983 to 1986. By the time I graduated, the drug dealers that would just go to school to recruit or to sell crack or just to hide from the police, they were wearing gazelles and Adidas tracksuits. And in my neighborhood, 
in the South Bronx, Billboard Projects. A lot of cats were, were, were wearing gazelles, tracksuits, and Adidas. And then by the time I graduated from high school and left for go to college in 1986, they weren't wearing Adidas anymore. They, weren't, they were wearing Jordans. Okay. Tell me about the Reagan years. What did you think of his run? Ronald Reagan was the biggest criminal in the history of the United States. Him and his cohort, George Bush, brought in crack to the inner cities. They flooded the inner cities with crack and assault weapons and watched as black and brown people murdered each other over crack and over territory, over money, over drugs. And it was genocide because those communities were damn near wiped out. A lot of those communities, especially in New York, Harlem, Bedford-Stuyvesant, Williamsburg, Red Hook, these were all predominantly black and brown neighborhoods. Well, now they're predominantly white neighborhoods due to gentrification because the value went down on the property because of the drugs. But once those drug dealers went to prison and the drug addicts either died or were sent away, you had a lot of abandoned buildings, a lot of abandoned uh, apartments that were fixed, that that were renovated, and now they're ten thousand to fifteen thousand dollar a month apartments lost, and you have predominantly white people that moved into those neighborhoods. So, uh, Reagan and Bush, maybe that was a master plan. We don't know. All I know is that they not only destroyed urban communities in New York City, but all over the world, all over the United States, Detroit, D.C., Atlanta, L.A., and your hometown, L.L., Chicago. You could tell me about gentrification in Chicago. You would know better than me. All right, one last question by L.L., and then we'll move on to my historical overview on Lennox Lewis. What's the funniest fight you ever watched? I mean, a fight where you couldn't help but laugh. Mine's is Marvis Frazier versus Mike Tyson. Well, mine's, my father and I, why I was watching this fight, was Lennox Lewis versus Andrew Galata. Galata had come off his two disqualification losses to Riddick Bowe, and off of those, he got a shot at Lennox Lewis's WBC heavyweight title. The fight started, and Lennox went out, and he jumped on Galata and blasted him in one round, destroyed Galata. My father and I sat there, and we laughed uproariously. We couldn't stop laughing. We were fucking losing our mind because people actually thought Galata had a shot at beating Lennox Lewis. And we and my father made a huge bet. I think he bet some clown $500 that <laughs> Lewis was going to win because— Galata had very good to great skills, a great left jab. He had power in both hands, but he was undisciplined. One thing we didn't know about Lennox, Lennox was disciplined. Lennox went in there, and he manhandled and destroyed Galata. It was a slaughter, and we couldn't stop laughing. That was the funniest fight I ever saw in my life. And now we go on to my historical overview. Perfect segue! Because we're talking about Lennox Lewis, my eighth greatest fighter of the last 45 years. Man, uh, LL, you couldn't have asked, you couldn't have asked a better question because it segued perfectly into 
Lennox Lewis. In the storied history of the heavyweight division, there haven't been many who have had the offensive skills possessed by Lennox Lewis. Not only is Lewis one of the most skilled heavyweight boxers who ever lived, he also was that rare commodity in boxing, a man who avoided no one and took on all challenges. Lewis's reign as the best heavyweight of a star-studded 1990 roster of legendary heavyweights easily earns him the 8th greatest fighter spot of the last 45 years. Alright, let me continue. After winning the Super Heavyweight Gold Medal at the 1988 Seoul Olympics for his adoptive country of Canada, Lewis went back to his native England to commence his pro career. Lewis, under the tutelage of trainer Pepe Correa, easily won his first 21 fights before engaging in a WBC title eliminator versus his hard-hitting, punching Canadian, hard-punching Canadian rival, Donovan Razor Ruddick. On October 31st, 1992, before a raucous hometown London crowd, Lewis dispatched Ruddick in the second round to earn a shot at the winner of the undisputed heavyweight title fight that was to, to, that was to take place two weeks later between champion Evander Holyfield and Reddick Bow. After Bow decisively defeated Holyfield to become undisputed champion, a month later, Bow tossed the WBC belt in the garbage instead of signing to fight Lewis. Lewis was immediately installed by the WBC as their champion. It wouldn't be the last time a heavyweight champion would avoid fighting Lewis. After three successful defenses of his WBC crown, Lewis shockingly was stopped in the second round by journeyman Oliver McCall in Lewis's London hometown. Immediately, McCall and his promoter Don King froze Lewis out of rematch. Six weeks later, after 45-year-old George Foreman shocked the world with, with his knockout of Michael Moore to win the IBF and WBA versions of the title, he also refused to give Lewis a shot at his titles. Lewis fired Carrera, Carrera and hired Emmanuel Stewart to become his trainer. Stewart had trained McCall in McCall's upset of Lewis. Stewart rejuvenated Lewis's career by fine-tuning Lewis's offense. Lewis refined his jab, which made him a heavyweight version of Stewart's greatest charge up to that point, Thomas Hearns. After Stewart took over the training duties, Lewis won his next four fights, which positioned him to be the mandatory contender for the now WBC champion Mike Tyson. Instead of defending against Lewis, Don King gave Lewis $4 million and then Tyson vacated the title to fight for the WBA version held by Bruce Seldon. On February 7, 1997, Lewis fought McCall in a rematch for the vacant WBC crown. McCall had a bizarre nervous breakdown which resulted in referee Mills Lane stopping the fight in the fifth round after McCall began crying and unwilling to defend himself. Now that Lewis was once again WBC champion, he set on the goal to become the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. Two years later, Lewis, now 33 years old, finally got his chance to become the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. I took my father to see Lewis face Evander Holyfield on the evening of March 13, 99 at 1999 at Madison Square Garden. Despite completely dominating and hurting Holyfield several times, Lewis was, fle was fleeced in the single worst robbery I've ever witnessed in my entire life as a boxing fan. Inexplicably, the fight was scored a draw. Exactly eight months later, Lewis defeated Holyfield in an immediate rematch to finally win that very elusive undisputed crown. It would be short-lived as Lewis gave up the WBA crown a few months later in order not to fight the French contender John Ruiz, who was undeservingly the number one contender. 
After three successful defenses of his WBC and IBF titles, Lewis ventured out to South Africa to fight in front of President Nelson Mandela. On April 22, 2001, Lewis, in front of Mandela and thousands of South Africans, was horsing around in the fifth round when he got caught with a spectacular right cross by challenger Hasin Rockman. Once again, Lewis was shockingly knocked out by a fighter nowhere near his le level. Luckily for Lewis, he had an immediate rematch clause. Seven months later, Lewis, now 36, was at his absolute best. In round four, Lewis landed a thudding left-hook-right cross combination that put Rockman to sleep in one of the greatest knockouts in heavyweight boxing history. Once again, Lewis was the recognized heavyweight champion of the world. He still had one last fighter to conquer, Mike Tyson. After a wild press conference in which Tyson bit Lewis's leg, Lewis and Tyson finally stepped into a Memphis, Tennessee ring to face each other on June 8, 2002. Although Tyson was a year younger than Lewis, he was no longer the fighter he was during his prime years of 1986 to 1990. Lewis, behind his battering ram of a left jab, had his way with a sluggish Tyson before lowering the, lowering the boom in round eight with another jackhammer right cross that put Tyson to sleep. Finally, Lennox Lewis showed the world what my father had felt after Tyson was, re was released from prison in 1995, that he would be cannon father for a focused and in-shape Lewis. A, a year later, Lewis, who was very out of shape and looked every bit of 37 years old, struggled mildly before stopping v Vitaly Klitschko in the sixth round due to a horrific cut he had opened above Klitschko's left eye. A few months later, Lewis finally retired as the reigning lineal heavyweight champion. He would go down as one of only a handful of heavyweight champions who defeated every fighter he ever faced. Lewis would retire with an outstanding record of 41 wins, two losses, one draw, with 32 knockouts. In 18 heavyweight title fights, he was a phenomenal 15-2-1 and, and successfully defended his title 14 times. In an era which included Hall of Fame greats such as Tyson, Bo, Foreman, and Holyfield, Lewis stood heads and shoulders above all of these legends to not only lay, lay claim to the greatest heavyweight of his era, but also as my eighth greatest fighter of the last 45 years. Ladies and gentlemen, until next week, everybody have, well, this will, be, this will have come, this would have been released the day after Valentine's Day. So I hope all the men and women out there that have a significant other had a beautiful Valentine's Day. Enjoy the extended President's Day weekend for most of the United States and for the rest of the world and the listeners from the United States. Everybody continue to be blessed and be a blessing.